Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be ultra wealthy, like to be a billionaire? Or maybe you can take it a step farther. Have you ever wished you were a billionaire? I mean, there's a lot of wealthy people in our world. Maybe one comes to mind, Jeff Bezos. You've heard the name before, right? The founder and CEO of, of Amazon. He, he's one of the wealthiest guys on the planet. His net worth is around $180 billion. That tends to fluctuate up and down with the price of Amazon stock. I mean, this guy is so wealthy that his net worth is greater than the GDP of three quarters of the countries of the world. That's how wealthy Jeff Bezos is. Now, if I were that wealthy, I would want a boat. Not just any boat. I would want a yacht. Not any yacht. I would want what they call a super yacht. And that's something that Bezos and I have in common because apparently he has the same desire. And he has a $500 million yacht on order that's set to be delivered this summer. And we don't know too much about it because it hasn't yet been delivered, but we do know that it's over a football field in length. And it is so big that to get from the dock uh, to, uh, out to the ocean, they actually have to dismantle a historic Dutch bridge because the boat is that big. And, you know, the Dutch citizens aren't very happy about that. They're actually really angry that they are going to take rotten eggs and throw it at his boat as it comes out of, the, out of the dock. So don't feel too bad for Bezos because he actually is reported to have another yacht that's actually worth $400 million, not $500. Oh, what a small boat, $400 million. This one's called the Flying Fox. Why don't you put a picture of this up, Daniel? It's huge. It has not one but two helicopter pads. On the back of the boat, it has a giant pool that can turn from a, like a cool, refreshing, cold pool to a hot tub in 10 seconds. Isn't that wild? It has a spa. It has a hammam. Anyone know what a hammam is? Yeah, me neither. It's a Turkish steam bath. Cool. Love to experience one of those someday. It apparently has a, a hospital uh, with like a decompression chamber for diving. I mean, this thing is state of the art. And in case you're wondering, it's available for charter. Beyonce spent some time on the boat last summer, and I thought that maybe this summer for our young adult campout, we could... <laughs> and whoever cheered the loudest is writing the check. Come on, that'd be awesome. Now, I know what you're thinking. Actually, let me take it a step farther. I know what you're feeling because I think I'm feeling it a little bit too, if we're honest. Maybe, is it a little bit of envy or just like a little bit of jealousy? That feeling of, man, if I had that boat, my life would be set. Man, if I had $180 billion and I was cruising around the world on a $500 million luxury super yacht, my life would be made. I'd have no cares in the world. I would be or maybe you're a little holier than me and you think, you know, if I could just spend a week of next summer on the Flying Fox, my life would be made. I would never have to take a vacation ever again. It's the temptation to believe that you know, if I had money, I would be happy. My life would be made. Bezos is filthy rich. rich. But frankly, his wealth doesn't even touch the wealth of our presumed author of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. Some have estimated that Solomon's net worth was around $2 trillion in today's money. And we can't even wrap our mind around a, a number like that. 
Apparently, uh, King Solomon, every utensil that he used, everything that he used to eat with, everything that he drank out of, pure gold. His secret service detail, his mighty men, their shields were overlaid with gold. And I mean, everything that he had was incredible. His, his throne was made of solid ivory and it was overlaid in gold. That's over the top. Our environmentalists today would not be too thrilled about that much ivory, would they? Or how about um, his palace? One pastor said that his palace would make the Taj Mahal look like a bus depot. How about the temple that he built for the Lord? It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. He had palace, he built a zoo for himself. I mean, this guy was filthy rich. He was at the top of the top. He had everything that anyone could ever want. So when he talks about what it was like from the top of the mountain, when he talks about what it was like uh, to, to have that much money, then we probably should listen up. We should probably pay attention because if we ignore his warnings, then we'll run the risk of a great cost that's gonna be more than a couple billion dollars. So why don't we open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter five. Don't worry, we're not skipping over chapters three and four. We'll come back to those. But tonight we're gonna focus on a text that's all about money and the love of money. I'm gonna start in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. We're just gonna dissect this verse by verse. I think the big idea from our text is our first principle, and it actually comes from that first verse that we read, verse 10, where Solomon says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Solomon helps us see the big lie. Here's the big lie. The more money that I have, the happier I'll be. The more money I have, the happier I'll be. Money will make me happy. Money can buy my happiness. In 1 Timothy, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is quoting King Solomon, and he doubles down on what, what Solomon says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I have a relative that's probably his favorite verse. Um, and here's what he says, the money, that money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's close, but it's not quite right because what does the Apostle Paul say? It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Tonight, we have to distinguish between money and the love of money because money is a neutral thing. Money is not inherently good. 
it's not inherently evil, yet money is seductive. Money is addictive. It, it has this allure to it, and it doesn't satisfy. That when someone falls in love with money, when it becomes their mistress, when it becomes their God, it's so easy to believe the great lie that money will make us happy, that the more money that I have, the happier I'll be. But like any addiction, like any substance, it provides temporary satisfaction. It provides temporary fulfillment. But at the end of the day, it always leaves us wanting more. In the wise words of John Rockefeller, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, just one more dollar. It will never satisfy. And frankly, this was on full display in our nation last night. Anybody watch the Super Bowl? Let me ask a different question. Anyone watch the commercials from the Super Bowl? Did you notice how many of the commercials centered on money? Did you notice how many of the commercials centered on gambling? Daily fantasy, draft kings, something that's become more and more mainstream in our country since the 2018 Supreme Court case that essentially legalized sports betting in all 50 states in our country. Do you know how much money Americans spent yesterday gambling on the Super Bowl? How about $8 billion? Now, before you think that's number, that number is high, that's actually low. That's the legal gambling. The illegal gambling, the undocumented gambling, some experts believe yesterday was around $100 billion on one game. America has a problem. And this is a trend that we've seen in our world in recent years with the internet growing more and more popular and, and sports gambling becoming more and more mainstream. I mean, you can listen to the radio or you can listen, watch cable news networks that are all about how to put money on the game to be able to double your profit. It's a big problem in our world today. Statistics suggest that 1% of adults in our country have a gambling addiction. But the numbers are even higher among young adults, somewhere between Six and nine percent of young adults experience gambling problems. Eighty percent of American adults gamble on a yearly basis. Now, that's different than a gambling addiction or compulsive gambling. However, I would honestly be hard-pressed to find a good reason for a Christ follower to step foot in a casino unless you want to preach to the slot machines, but that's a different story. But compulsive gambling can be harmful because it functions in a similar way to a sexual addiction or a drug addiction that never satisfies, that in order to get the same dopamine hit, in order to get the same pleasure, you've got to increase the risk. So it might start with $5, and then it goes to 10 and then it goes to 20 and over time, even over years, someone digs, themselves, digs themselves in a hole that they can't get out of. And maybe you're dabbling in, in gambling today. Maybe it started with DraftKings or Daily Fantasy. Maybe it's a, a little bit of some poker on the internet and you're putting a little money on it here or there. Statistics show that severe gambling addictions, gambling problems begin in young 20-somethings, young 30-somethings that just start dabbling. And over time, over years, it progresses into something that's severe. Don't believe the lie that I'm just dabbling in this. It's just not a big deal. It can be a problem that can progress very seriously down the road. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you would say, yeah, I've got an addiction that 
gambling has control over my life. If that's you, it, it's time to seek help. It's time to talk to somebody. It's time to open up with a pastor or a mentor or a small group leader. Maybe it's time to talk to a counselor and reverse the course on that vice in your life to be free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you address that issue today, then you can avoid countless hurt in the future. You've demonstrated the big lie. You've demonstrated through the addiction that money won't make you happy. It will just leave you wanting more. But if we're honest, the love of money is a lot deeper than just gambling. If you didn't drive to the casino last month, or if you didn't put money down on the Super Bowl yesterday, don't worry, you're not quite off the hook. Maybe your love of money or my love of money has manifested itself in our life in a different way. Maybe you take the idea of Sabbath as a suggestion. You know Sabbath. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh day, not because God needed a nap, but as a model for us to rest, to work for six days and rest on the seventh. But if you're highly entrepreneurial, you're thinking in terms of, of profit. And maybe, maybe you just come to church on a Sunday morning when you can, but then the rest of the week, you're just working your tail end off to make as much money as you can to turn more profit. But God's given us the opportunity to take a day off a week to rest, to focus on him and on his people. Or how about this? Maybe your love of money manifests in this way. You're completely dissatisfied with your job because you're not making enough. So at least every week you're updating your LinkedIn profile or you're on Indeed.com or ZipRecruiter and you're always looking for a job that promises to pay 20% more than what you're making today because you're convinced the 20% pay bump is going to make you 40% happier until you realize that a 20% pay bump puts you in the next tax bracket, which means you'll only make 10% less, 10% more than you're making today. And then when you get the job, you realize that you hate your job and you never should have taken it in the first place. Money won't make you happy. It's just hevel. Or how about this? Maybe you've stayed out of the casino, but you're hooked on day trading. Maybe it's stocks. Maybe it's cryptocurrency. Those can provide the same high as the roulette table or the slot machine. If your mood is affected by the stock market every day, it could be a problem. If you're constantly checking the value of your cryptocurrency portfolio, that's a problem. If you get that high, that feeling, when you double your money in a day, that's a problem. Or maybe for some of us, the love of money translates into love of stuff, materialism, driving that nice car, or that new iPhone every fall, or wearing designer clothes. Or for some of you, paying astronomical amounts of money for really old clothes, because apparently that's cool. Or maybe you need that perfect house or that perfect apartment, that dream vacation. You've got to be the president of the Finer Things Club. Maybe you love money because of the status. You want to find a way into that upper echelon, be, be a social elite in society. Or maybe you love money because of the sense of accomplishment. You're not a spender, but you're a saver. And every time your portfolio grows by 20%, you feel 50% more accomplished. There are a lot of reasons you and I could fall in love with money. The list could go on and on, and it could manifest in each of our lives in a different way. But the wise Solomon gives us at least five reasons in our text that we should refuse to believe the big lie. Solomon went all in on money. Money became his God. And at the other side of the tunnel, he gives us some warnings to not go down the same path that he did. And here's what, he's, what he found. It's just systematic in our text. In Ecclesiastes, we'll start in uh, verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, 
they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? It's just an interesting text, interesting verse. He says, the more you have, the more stuff you have, the more money that you have, the more people want a slice of the pie. And don't we see that? Have you ever watched how people just suck up to those who have money? How all of a sudden they, they see somebody who has money and they're like, oh man, I want to ride on his super yacht. Or oh, I want tickets to the box game at Lambeau Field. I'm just going to make sure that we rub shoulders. I'm going to make sure that I'm extra nice to him. Maybe I'll receive some benefits from some of his stuff. Have you ever seen that happen? Or do we ever have the temptation to try to befriend those who have money just to get some of their stuff? Solomon is saying that the love of money leads to fake friends. That's our second principle. The love of money leads to fake friends. Wealth attracts people who want the benefits of the friendship so that when the money dries up, the friends are gone. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer or an average worker, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Solomon is saying that money, that wealth creates worry. How am I going to maintain this? How am I going to invest in this? But what if the market collapses tomorrow? What if inflation continues to rise at this alarming rate? What if cryptocurrency just keeps tanking instead of increasing like they said it was going to? What happens if our vacation home goes up in flames? Do I have the right insurance policy? What happens if they break into my house while I'm on vacation and, and they have access to the tens of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry in, in our home? Wealth, materialism, it adds to worry. The love of money, it leads to abundant anxiety. That's our next principle, a love of money leads to abundant anxiety. It's interesting, Solomon reminds us that those who have the most money are also the most anxious. That when money becomes someone's God, they can't fathom their life without it, and it literally keeps them awake at night. The stress about protecting your money or your assets keep you awake at night. If that's the case, it could be an indication that you're in love with money. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Solomon points out something that I think we see. I know we see. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the wealthiest people are also the stingiest? It's not always the case. There's some very wealthy people in our world that have been highly generous, but that seems to be more abnormal than normal. Sometimes those with the most money are the least generous, the least willing, at least proportionally to give it away. But then the inverse is also true, that sometimes those who are the poorest are also the most generous. It was a couple years ago, right as Hannah and I were starting to date, that she went on a mission trip to South Africa. I don't know how much you know about South Africa, but the disparity and the inequality there is way broader than our country today. There's this class of very wealthy social elites that are mostly white, that's in the minority, at least population-wise. And then there's a much larger percentage of the population that's the social outcasts that are much poorer, that are black. And there's a huge disparity in this country that those who are poor are very poor. Well, Hannah was doing a nursing visit with another missionary, and they went into a, one of these very poor villages. And there was a young mom with a, an infant child, and Hannah walked into their tin their tin house, this tiny one-room tin house. And immediately this, this young mom looks at Hannah and this other nurse 
and offers them bread and Coca-Cola. And in that culture, you can't say no. It'd be incredibly disrespectful to deny your, your host the opportunity to serve. But for a woman that was probably living on a dollar or two a day, maybe, I don't even know if she's working, she spent at least an entire day's wage on being a good host to a random stranger. When was the last time that you spent an entire day's salary on someone that you've never met before? Man, proportionally, that woman was the most generous person that my wife had ever met. Sometimes those who are the poorest are the most generous, and sometimes those who are the wealthiest are the stingiest. Interesting. Maybe we'd expect the opposite. Look at the next verse. I didn't give you that principle yet. Number four, love of money leads to harmful hoarding. Love of money leads to harmful hoarding. When wealthy are in love with their money, when they're clinging tightly to their money, they never want to let it go. Now we can look at verse 14. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. We've got to understand that within this culture, that being able to give an inheritance to your son or your daughter, to your children was a big deal, even a, a much bigger deal than in our world today. But Solomon paints a picture of, of a man who had a great sum of money, but through a bad investment, the value of his portfolio went essentially to zero. And then when he passed away, there was nothing that he had left to give his, his son, which would bring incredible shame onto their family. That's the picture that Solomon is painting here. We have to understand that it's just not that hard for someone to lose money in a bad investment in what Solomon calls a bad venture. Investments, they can go south at any time. I mean, think about how volatile the stock market's been in the last year. Or remember back to 2008. Now, some of you were six years old in 2008, so you can't remember back to 2008. But if you do, Remember the market crashed. I remember that there were wealthy in our country who saw their income evaporate and their homes foreclosed on. Or families who had $250,000 saved for their kids' college education that all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, were valued at twenty dollars or $25,000. Retirement portfolios that dropped by 40%. It's just not that hard to lose money in a bad venture, in a bad investment, because nothing is guaranteed. The love of money leads to insecure investments. That's our next principle. The love of money leads to insecure investments. No investment opportunity is completely secure. Not real estate, not your 401k, not cryptocurrency, not the dollar, not the yen, not the euro, not even gold. And when someone is in love with money, when money is their ultimate thing, when money is their God, then they're far more likely to take an even riskier investment so that they can have more money. Look at verse 15 in chapter 5. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Pastor Jeff told a story a couple weeks ago that I thought was pretty funny. He talked about a man who was a millionaire. And on his deathbed, he looked at his wife and said, I want you to bury me with a million dollars. So what did his wife do? She writes out a check for a million dollars and puts it in his casket. It's pretty ingenious, right? But it reminds us that 
what good does money do in the grave? Nothing. Doesn't matter if you're Jeff Bezos. Doesn't matter if you're a, a young mom in South Africa living on a dollar a day. When your life is over, your money means absolutely nothing. And that's our final principle, that money is meaningless in the morgue. Money is meaningless in the morgue. It does us no good. And I know some of us might imagine that, you know, my, I have my whole life ahead of me. I have my whole life to make a profit and, and make a living. Friends, not even tomorrow is guaranteed. Our life is a vapor. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. No investment is guaranteed. And if Solomon didn't give us enough reasons to let go of our love of money, he tacks on one more at the end of his passage. Look at the last verse, verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Well, that doesn't sound like a very happy way to live, does it? In darkness and sickness and vexation and anger? I mean, how can Solomon know that? Because he lived it. It was his life. Solomon reminds us that there's a lot of things that money can buy, (laughs) but there's even a longer list of things that money could never buy. Last I checked, money can't buy good health. The stomach flu does not discriminate based on income level. It affects all of us. Money, it can't buy a stress-free life. Actually, money might cause more anxiety than those who have less. Money can't buy emotional peace or spiritual peace. Solomon found himself enjoying dinner alone and angry and confused. What a sad existence. He got to the top of the mountain expecting to find fulfillment and happiness and joy from being the wealthiest person on the planet. And what did he find? Vexation and sickness and anger and darkness. Not quite what we'd expect. But what about you? What about me? Is your trust in Jesus or is your trust in money? Maybe we can take it a step farther. Is your love for Jesus or are you in love with money? Now, if each of us took some time to reflect, I'm guessing that we could each find an area of our life we might have too much love for money or for our finances or maybe where we've allowed our wealth to determine our identity. But Solomon warns us that the love of money will lead to a miserable life. It's hevel. Don't buy the lie that money can buy happiness. It can't and it won't. Only Jesus will satisfy. And when we follow Jesus, he promises to take care of us, but he doesn't promise an easy life. He doesn't promise a wealthy life or a prosperous life, but he does promise to take care of us. But at the same time, we've got to remember our big idea in Ecclesiastes, that life is meaningless under the sun, but you and I find meaning through the sun. We find meaning through Christ. That when money becomes the ultimate thing in someone's life, when money is a functional savior, then we'll never be satisfied because the love of money is hevel. But when we know Jesus, when he's our Lord, when he's our savior, when he's our center, when he's our ultimate thing, and money's not, then money becomes a great tool to be used for his kingdom. And a little bit later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives us a picture of maybe how we should use the money that God's given to us when Jesus is our ultimate thing. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. But as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good. They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. The storing up 
treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Did you hear what he said in verse 17? Ask for the rich in this present age. I don't want you to put your hands up, but if I ask, you know, are you a, would you consider yourself a rich person financially? Not very many of us would put our hand in the air. So, cool, this doesn't apply to us. Actually, wrong. <laughs> by global standards, just by being in the room tonight, chances are you're actually in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. The median household income in our area is about $47,000. That puts you in the one, top 1%. Think of it this way. For someone making that much money, it would take the average laborer in Indonesia 50 years to make that kind of income. Or how about this? $47,000 would pay the salary of 150 doctors in Pakistan for a year. When we think of it that way, we're rich. By global standards, we're in the top 1%. If our room tonight represented the entire globe, then $47,000 a year would be the single wealthiest person. So this text definitely applies to us. And I think we might expect when someone becomes a Christian, when Jesus becomes their center, that Paul might say, now that you're a Christian, it's time to take a vow of poverty. It's time to sell your house. It's time to give everything to the poor. It's time to become a monk and live a minimalist life. Is that what he said? No, it's not. He said, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be prideful in order to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. See, that verse only makes sense when we think of money from a Christian worldview, from a Christian perspective, that when money is our everything, when money is our ultimate thing, it's never gonna satisfy. But when Jesus is our center, then money becomes a gift that God has given us. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And even the things that we have, they're not ours. Everything that we have is God's. We're just taking care of the things that he's given to us. But money, again, it's not an inherently good thing. It's not an inherently bad thing, but it's a tool that we can use for God's kingdom. And when we think of ourselves as some of the wealthiest people in the world, that can't lead to pride and thinking, wow, look at me. I've got so much money, I've arrived. But it also shouldn't lead to the opposite of apologizing, feeling guilty that God's blessed us. We've got to land in the middle, thanking God for the gifts that he's given us and ultimately enjoying the gifts that he's given us. But what does that look like? I mean, how do we, how do we apply enjoying, especially the, the financial gifts that God has blessed us with? Well, maybe we can think of it in terms of priority. And with the money that God has entrusted to you, entrusted to me, priority one is giving to God. Maybe that's giving to your local church, supporting the work that God is doing around the world through missions. We give to God first. He gets the first cut of our paycheck, not the leftovers. And then second, we're generous with other people. Maybe it's our family, maybe it's our friends, maybe there's a, a need that somebody has in the neighborhood. And then third, we spend on ourselves. God, others, me. God first, others second, Sam third. If I had a feeling, a lot of us like to invert that, don't we? And we think, wow, okay, here's my tax refund. And that's enough to take my dream vacation to the beach. Perfect. Okay, that's Sam first. Number two, oh, yeah, I guess 
I, I need to buy a Christmas gift or a Christmas gift, a birthday gift for my mom or my aunt or my uncle. I'll do that. And then, okay, looks like I have about $5 left over. That's going in the offering basket and I'll do better next year, right? Is that what it sounds like? Or do we give to God first, others second, and then ourselves last? But when we have that order, then I think there's some great latitude, some great leeway for us to responsibly enjoy the gift that God has given us, which is why I don't think that your family needs to feel guilty about taking a wonderful, cost-effective family vacation and enjoying memories together. I think that falls under the idea of enjoying the gifts that God has given to us. But Paul gives a, a picture of how the rich need to be responsible. He says, verse 18, they're to do good and be rich in good works. I also wouldn't expect Paul to say that. I would think that Paul would say, just be generous, be quick to share, which he says in the next verse. But first he says, be rich in good works. In other words, for the, the wealthy people within the church, Paul wants them to be known first for their service, for their love, for their generosity with their time, not for their finances. Interesting. What are we known for? Are we known as people who are, are quick to sacrifice, who are quick to give of our time? If I'm being honest, the only thing I'm less tempted to give away than money is time. I mean, if somebody asked me to give up uh, an afternoon on a Saturday to help them with something, I would much rather just write them a check if I'm being honest. I think sometimes we're even more stingy with our time than we are with our money. But what does Paul say? That we're to do good, we're to be rich in good works, that we should be known, identified as people who are generous with our time and our money. So when you get that tax refund in a couple of weeks, what do you do with it? What's your first thought? How can I spend this on myself? Or how can I spend this on somebody else? How can it be a blessing to God and his kingdom? Or when we get that, that year-end bonus, do we think, man, how can, I, how can I spend this on myself? Or how can I use this to benefit God and his kingdom? Money's a tool, and we have the opportunity to use that tool to glorify God and honor him. Well, as we wrap up tonight, want to end in a, a unique way, I think a really helpful way. As a tie between uh, our message tonight and our message in two weeks, we're going to finish with the testimony. In two weeks, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to talk about uh, work and success and vocation, which Solomon talks about a couple chapters earlier. And, and ultimately, there's a, a close connection between money and, and work and success. They're a little bit different, but there's some connection there. But we're going to hear a, a testimony from someone in our young adult family tonight um, that I think will be a great uh, real-life application of, of our talk tonight and our talk in two weeks. So why don't you join me in giving a nice warm young adult welcome to our friend Austin Solomon. You had to sit all the way in the back, Austin. Take the nice, long, slow walk up to the front. There's your microphone. I want everyone to say hi, Austin. Hi, Austin. It is pretty bright up here. You can barely see people. You do have to talk in the microphone, though. That's step one. All right. You can barely see people. There we go. <laughs> so, Austin, we've known each other for uh, four and a half years. Yep. Yep. So, I well, right when I moved back to the area, um, I was in the market looking for a house, and I was talking to my dad, and my dad said, Sam, you, you've got to reach out to this guy named Austin. He's, he's a great realtor. I was like, okay. Generally, I make a habit of listening to my dad. So um, 
So we got connected and, and Austin hooked me up and then ultimately Hannah moved in after we got married with a house that we love over on Stark Street. So I think there's a picture of that up there. Look at that. How, how old were you in that picture? Uh, I think I would have probably been like either 19 or 20, probably 19, 20. I would say you look older than that in the picture, but that wouldn't be true. So <laughs> yeah, the facial true. hair is helping Austin. That's true. There Just we go. Doing, there we doing go. some work. So, um, but Austin, as a 19-year-old in Wausau, um, was doing things that like no other realtor, even who'd been in the business for like 20 or 30 years, had been doing. And Austin has had unprecedented success in realty over the last five years. You've probably seen his picture around. You've maybe even seen it on Facebook. Um, winning awards like, I don't, I don't even know what they are, like Realtor of the Year for like all of Coldwell Banker. I mean, some, some pretty big things. You're not going to toot your own horn, right? Which is fine. But, um, but Austin in some ways has kind of like been to the top. When I think of like a 19, 20-year-old young guy, and you've told me stories of this. I mean, you get guys that are texting you saying, Austin, let's grab coffee. And really, they're wanting to try to figure out how they at 24 or 25 can be the next Austin. Because to many, you're, you're at the top of the success mountain. Um, and I would just love to hear a little bit of, of your story on, on, on what it was like getting there and, and kind of the satisfaction that it, it provided. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell a little bit about my story. So for me, um, really like 20, in 2016 was probably one of the best years of my life. I just had gotten out of high school. And uh, that's when I started as an agent in real estate. Um, and life was was pretty well in check. Like there was good relationships, good friendships. I was going to the UWMC uh, and things just kind of like, you know. Thank you for were... calling it the MC, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I can't, can't, yeah. I can't do it. UW-Wausau. At Wausau, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. UWMC, yeah. So um, things were in check in 2016 and uh, I, you know, everything was kind of in balance and some things didn't really go my way or how I wanted them to go like towards the end of the year and early in 2017 and I think that I um, had just kind of like decided to really like dive in feet first well not dive in but really um, probably that was probably the point where I started to go over the top into real estate um, so I would say the years of like 2017 to 2021 like good most of last year um, probably characterized by the, this deep belief that if I could be successful enough, if I could have enough money, um, that that would, that would lead to fulfillment. And, I mean, there's plenty of people that set out to be successful as possible or to make as much money as possible, and they don't find success and they don't find money. But your story is a little different than that, that you set out to be as successful as possible, hmm. and you found the success. Mm-hmm. You found the money. Yep. Yeah. And I think, like, for me, like, I... I always wondered, like, why, like, you know, why I've went to real estate, like, and I think it's really, for me, it's kind of like to, to get some of my core questions answered, like, the real deep questions of, like, do I have what it takes? Like, am I loved? Am I secure? Like, I think that's where, in real estate, I could see that I was successful. I was on the track of being successful, right? And um, And I would get energy there. Like, that would be I could see like, hey, this is an area of my life that I feel like I'm winning in, and that felt really good. Like, like um, so um, that just is what kind of, you know, drove me to continue to like seek more and more in real estate, and it, 
uh, there was definitely like there is some fulfillment there, but it, it is fleeting like over time. Yeah. Did you notice that like it got more fleeting over time or was there kind of you hit a point where like, man, this just isn't all it's cracked up to be? Yeah, there, oops, there was definitely uh, there was definitely warning signs like throughout the years. There was definitely like, you know, people and things that had happened that were kind of warning signs that, hey, maybe this is this is your, this area of your life is more. Um, intense than it needs to be like this is an idol but there was there's like this deep part of me that just did not want to give it up um, uh, so it just it felt so like I'm like no like I'm not giving this up like this is mine you know I'll give everything else up but not this hmm. was there then a point that you felt like and this is that that you did give that up or like what did that what did that look like yeah so um I think a couple other things that I think are interesting to kind of, as I look back, and it's really interesting because, like, in the moment, like, in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, good chunk of last year, so I, I think I was really deceived, like, and I, in the moment, like, I wouldn't have been able to think about, like, any of these things. Like, I just really, like, I was kind of just, you know, I, was, I wouldn't have been able to recognize these things, but now looking back, um, it's been cool to see how like God can use different events and like different things. And I think for me, um, just throughout the years, like life is hard, right? And so like life is hard and things hurt. And for me, like I would always like the arrow would always land like in like you're not enough, right? That's one of like that's that's just what I always felt like you're not enough, like you don't have what it takes. And when I would get that from the world, or there'd be things that would. Um, happen that would um, that would drive that message home. I would just kind of double back down in real estate. Like that was my like. It's like okay. I would be like, I'm gonna show them. You know, I'll show them. You know, like, and I would just double back down in real estate. Um, and yeah, that just that pursuit. And then um, I think what was your what was your original question? I don't remember now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, um, I think your your question was was there a point that it became like that you know, like what happened. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, real estate did kind of lose its luster. And then once real estate lost its luster, I was kind of like, okay, well, this is something new, right? Like yeah. selling houses just doesn't seem like as good. And so then the next thing I was like, hey, maybe like, maybe like a, a girlfriend or a wife, like maybe that could answer this question, right? Like the deepest longings, right? Um, but that, that didn't really work out either. So, um, but it, it's really interesting, like God is good. And it's cool that he uh, works mysteriously to kind of turn our hearts towards him. And sometimes he really has to, like, whack us upside the head to get us to rely on him. Um, We're chuckling because we know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. Yeah, I think so, it was a collective, like, oh, yeah, I felt that before in the room when you said that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. When did that two-by-four hit you in the head? Um... <laughs> Well, I would say just, you know, a couple months ago is probably like, yeah, def like the two by four hit me in the head. Um, and I think that it was kind of like, it, you know, there's different events that happen that kind of like, you know, that allow, like actually like God had kind of made it pretty easy for me to kind of like, well, it wasn't easy to hear. It was extremely difficult to hear, but it kind of was very clear. And there was kind of a point where I was like, okay. I can either double back down in real estate to respond to this hurt, or I could like journey out with God and say like, God, like I really need your help. Hmm. 
Um, so that's, that's where, like, you know, it's that point where you're like, you know, I, this area of my life, I just need to surrender this over to the Lord. Mm. And, uh, and I desperately need yeah. God's help to do it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And continual help, too. Like, yeah. not, just, not just once, but like a daily. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I hope that's a spot that all of us have come to in our life. Um, and it's better to come to you sooner rather than later. So that you don't walk down that path of looking for fulfillment in money or your job or in a relationship and to get five or 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road and realize this isn't satisfying. It's not providing what I desire. So um, I just so appreciate you sharing your, your heart um, and, and your perspective from the top of the mountain saying, guys, this isn't what it's cracked up to be. Like, it, it's, not, it, it's, not what I, it's not what I thought. So... Yeah, I think that uh, it's it's not what it's cracked up to be. Like, if someone, I almost get like discouraged when like someone texts me and like, or I meet with someone with coffee and they're like, hey, like they're they're telling me their plans and how they're going to be, you know, they're going to sell X amount of houses and this many things and they're going to have this much money in five years and that's why it's going to lead to this much freedom. And I just almost get frustrated because I'm like, no, like you, you know, it's not what you think it's going to be. Yeah. It's really not. Like, and I've achieved some level of success in that area, and I just yeah. know. I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'll go there anyway. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but it kind of sense that turning point, um, maybe a couple months ago, it really seems like you're, you're trying to find that, that satisfaction, that contentment in the Lord and giving him real estate. But does that mean that now today, like, wow, I'm living a 100% satisfied life? 100%. <laughs> no, and we've talked about this, like, it's been hard. Like, I, I thought that, like, okay, so I thought when I, once I surrendered this area of my life to Christ, like, I thought, like, okay, I'm going to start running towards the Lord, right? And God's going to, like, make me more faithful. He's going to make me more spiritual. Like, he's going to, like, just bring this joy, like, just bring this ultimate joy in him. And, um, it, and it's like, I'm like, wow, like, these last couple months have been really hard, hmm. And it's like, what, like, sometimes I'm sitting in your seats, and I'm like, all right, like, we're going through Ecclesiastes, and it's like, yeah, God, like, I get it, like, these things don't, don't satisfy, but, like, where's the joy? Like, like, why aren't you just giving me joy? You know, like, that's, it's been hard, and I feel like the Lord is like, you know, like, if this is the real estate success, he's, like, taking one brick off of, you know, one brick at a time, and I'm like, Lord, just move it over, like, just move it over quickly, just please. Just rip off the Band-Aid. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just move it all over to, like, just make me super spiritual successful, you know, like, <laughs> but it's so slow, right? And it's, like, it's hard, like, and I'm not, I'm not very patient. And so and I think that, I think the thing is, too, though, like, when we're not patient, like, and we try to do things too quickly, like, that, I think there's an opportunity for the enemy to, like, kind of just, like, yeah. and so I've battled with that, too, like, just, you know, battles from the enemy and, um, so it's been a really hard, like, you know, last couple months and it's, and it's weird because it's like, sometimes I'm like, I know I'm pursuing the Lord more. Um, but sometimes it's like in this, in this interim time, right. It, it, it's like, I almost feel like at sometimes I had like my life more figured out like a year ago. Hmm. And it's, so it's, it's just kind of, it's a journey though. And I think, um, I've been encouraged as I get to know like other believers and kind of hear some of their stories too. It's like, Hey, maybe I'm not the only one that's like struggling, like, right. 
Um, and I, I hope that's encouraging to you guys as well. Like when we talk about some of these things and we talk about joy in the Lord, I think it's a process and uh, it's not that like you're going to be sitting that, like every day. It's not that you're just going to be super joyful. Like it's, it's certain seasons and, and times. And so, yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that, that just because you handed that area of your life over to the Lord, it wasn't like, wow, now my life is perfect. Mm. You know, and I think there's this temptation maybe for us to feel like, man, once I surrender, then my life is just going to become perfectly ordered. And that's not how it works, right? Um, but to hear that in the midst of that, that you're running after and pursuing the Lord and allowing him to do that work of sanctification brick by brick um, is awesome. So why don't we thank Austin for sharing his story tonight. I'm going to pray for us, and, um, and then we'll break into our small groups. Heavenly Father, um, what a great night it's been. Um, just to open up your word and uh, to hear even a, a practical application in, in real life uh, from our text tonight. Um, Father, teach us to prioritize you as the most important person in our life, um, to let go of a love for worldly things, let go of a love for money, and to live our lives with open palms, not closed fists, saying, Father, use me, use the time, the talents, the resources, the money for your glory and for your honor and for your good. So give us wisdom, even as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, may it be a helpful and encouraging time. In Jesus' name, amen.